The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, online Sangha, give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. All right. Fusho, give me a wave. All right, there we go. We got some waves from the physical Zendo. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Kojin, and uh, I'm a senior student here at the Village Zendo. And uh, before I start, I just want to acknowledge our pioneering hybrid team. Um, you know, we've been open physically for, you know, a couple of weeks now, but um, it's an ongoing process of trial and error. And just as we think we have one thing right, um, something else, you know, there's another challenge that we have to figure out. So, um, so we're, but we are figuring it out and we're, you know, we're just seeing how this all, how this all looks. Um, so I just want to say thank you to everyone for your patience while we've, you know, while we've tried to figure out what hybrid practice for us looks like. So, so there's a lot happening in the world. If you're like me, you might read the news and feel a lot of distress. To see what's happening around the world, in our country, in our own cities, I can't help but feel overwhelmed, a little defeated. And I have my own feelings of inadequacy to even meet these challenges. You know, we're seeing the rights and liberties of our most vulnerable stripped away. Ignorance and hatred propagating upon itself. And while I'm taken by the latest headlines in the newspapers, there's still the unresolved injustice of yesterday. The injustice that's expired from the news cycle. And for me, there's always the burning question of how to meet these challenges. How do we meet suffering? And not just the suffering that's happening out there. It's easy to point over there. But what about the suffering that's happening in here? As I look at my own reactions to what I see happening. One of our Sangha members, Iris, started a really great and penetrating discussion on our listserv group, asking the question, how can I deeply listen to those whose opinion I don't share? Thank you, Iris. And as I read her posts, you know, it, it, the question sat with me for a few days. And, uh, and, you know, I was trying to think of how I might reply. And then I realized I have a Dharma talk. So here we go. <laughs> there's, that, there's that meme of, of Bernie Sanders at the Biden inauguration with the mittens and his legs and his arms crossed. And, and one meme has him saying, this could have been an email. So I'll apologize because this Dharma talk really could have been an email. <laughs> but here we are. And I should preface, you know, this talk today 
to say that, you know, I'm not look, you know, I can't give, and I'm not looking to give, um, you know, black and white answers because there aren't any. Um, you know, this question comes up for me because it's something I've struggled with my whole life, with my practice. And it's a question that will sit with me, I think, you know, decades from now with miles and miles of zazen under my cushion. And as I, as I read, you know, this question, how can I listen to the other? I noticed my own immediate reaction in my body. You know, an agitation in my belly, a tightness in my throat, a very visceral discomfort. And even thinking about it now, those same sensations come up. Partly because I don't want to entertain the opinions of other people, the people on the other side of the divide. There's almost a feeling like I'll be tainted by their ignorance, tainted by bigotry. I've labeled those people as the other, labeled them as ignorant, hateful, racist, homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic. I have a lot of labels at the ready <laughs> um, because with each label that I give them over there, I get to build a little virtuous pedestal for myself over here. And it's pretty convenient having those labels for the other. Because when I separate myself from them in that manner and reduce them to a two-dimensional soundbite, I absolve myself from the responsibility of listening. I absolve myself of meeting anyone else on equal footing. And I get to stay in a, very, in a very safe and comforting space of my own ideas, surrounded by people and community that echo those ideas right back to me. But it's those self-protecting structures that we build around ourselves. It's those same structures that keep us separated from one another, isn't it? the separation that one builds around oneself. It might provide some fleeting sense of safety and comfort, but I, I think it happens at the expense of something greater. When I confine myself to my little corner of safety, there's a, you know, there's a narrowing that happens, a, a tightening of oneself. And there's almost a very physical sensation of closing off. You might feel it in your chest. Your shoulders even might come into a protective posture. And with that narrowing, there's also a loss of commonality of shared humanity. I'm starting a new job next week with Maimonides Hospital as an EMT in their ambulance department. And emergency medical services uh, definitely has a fair share of diversity 
and political beliefs. And a, a paramedic that I know, he immediately drew my ire because I saw him drive up in a Jeep with a Blue Lives Matter sticker, a slogan that became popular in direct opposition to the idea that Black Lives Matter. And I judged him thoroughly and righteously based on that one sticker. But through circumstance, I got to know him. Here's someone that's extremely kind and generous, puts a dollar in the homeless man's cup, devotes his life as a paramedic to helping people on what is most often the worst and most terrifying day of their lives. And he just happens to have a father and two brothers that are police officers. If I would have stopped at that sticker, I would have missed out on an amazing person that shares many of the same values that I have. I remember that emotional morning after the 2016 election when Trump was elected. And Enkia Roshi encouraged us to see Trump voters as confused little Buddhas that have lost their way. Very confused Buddhas, sometimes dangerous Buddhas, but nevertheless, Buddhas lost in the weeds with their own causes and conditions that have brought them to where they are. So I could say we can start by meeting people from the ground of not knowing. Buddha's bowing to Buddhas, Buddha's recognizing Buddhas, Buddha's bumping into Buddhas. But as I say that, I recognize that like, there's kind of a stink, stink of Zen to it as I say it. You know, do I really see Trump as a Buddha? Gregory Abbott, DeSantis? the Supreme Court, can I say that with any authenticity? I don't know if I'm there yet. But if, I, if we look at the example of the image of the Buddha on an altar, we aren't worshiping some dead guy from a couple of thousand years ago. If we were, then Zen would be a dead religion, about as useful as a dead language. The image of the Buddha on the altar is a living image. It's a mirror that reminds us of our own Buddha nature, to remind us to look inward and to wake up to the reality of our own life. And in that sense, even the cars outside my window, also Buddhas. I laughed during um, Musho's Dharma talk the other night because he was talking about Buddha and Putin. And then he accidentally said Puda. But you know, Putin is a Puda. He's awakened a lot of people to the needs of others. 
as they offer support and aid to the people of Ukraine. And the rec recognition that the people of Russia also suffer under a very difficult authoritarian regime. And there's the renewed conversation of racism in the Western world as we look at the contrast between how white refugees are accepted into Western countries compared to black and brown refugees that have been fleeing war and genocide for decades. And I'm not, you know, I need to say that I'm not trying to reframe any of this with a silver lining. War is terrible. So the ground of not knowing, that's a good starting point. It's an important starting point. It's a place of openness, a place of potential. But if we stop there, I think the picture would be incomplete. Because there's the trap of getting stuck in a place of neutrality. You know, from, from the perspective of we are all one, one could say that the other's opinion is just as valid as ours. From the perspective of absolute reality, one could say that Putin is no farther or closer to the Dharma than we are. And while this underlying oneness exists and is impenetrable, we still have to step into the messiness of our lives. Going to work, bringing home dinner, sitting on a cushion, then walking out into a busy street corner, recognizing suffering, but then extending a hand. After that 2016 election, Enki Roshi reminded us that as bodhisattvas, we are born to be exactly where we are needed. We are born to be exactly right here in this place and time. And she encouraged us to see our practice as engaged citizen bodhisattvas. And there's something comforting in that realization is there's an agency that comes with it. We are all born to be exactly where we are, right here, right now, with all the discomfort, all the joy, all the pain, with our loved ones and our not so loved ones. When I studied with Tenshin Roshi, he used to always like to ask the question, when was the golden age of Zen? And it was always a quick question, uh, a trick question, um, because you know there's a there's the common agreement among Zen scholars that there is a particular dynasty that was the golden age of Zen. But Tenshin would always answer himself and say, "The golden age is now. There's no other time than now." No other way the world can be in this moment other than now.
But with that comes the question, what do we do with now? That's a question that we're not too concerned with when we're experiencing joy and ease. But what about when now is filled with discomfort? What do we do with the now of our suffering? The now of our anger? Watching the news and depending on how we identify the now of our rights being stripped away. On the cushion, the, the instructions are very clear. Place our attention on the breath. If an emotion arises, we can experience it. Not turning toward or looking away. Dropping the narrative that we've constructed and always coming back to now. However comfortable or uncomfortable that now might be. And in that repetitive uh, activity, we expand our capacity to experience this. We expand our capacity to hold all the ingredients that our lives are serving us. But then we get off the cushion and things get a little bit more complicated. We read the news or go shopping or past the homeless person on the sidewalk. But Zen also offers us some helpful frameworks for practicing off the cushion. We have the precepts so that we can live a life of harmony, so that we can pay attention to our actions. There's the realization of interdependence, the recognition that nothing exists in a vacuum but always existing in relationship to everything else. And as engaged bodhisattvas, the lifelong practice of how our actions can propagate a more compassionate, caring world for all sentient beings. And it's messy, it's not easy. And most of the time we might not know what, what the right course of action is. There's a koan that gives a teaching on this called Gensha's Guiding and Aiding Living Beings. So the koan says, Gensha teaching the community said, the old adepts everywhere all speak of guiding and aiding living beings. Supposing they encountered three kinds of differently abled people, how would they guide them? With a blind person, they could pick up the gavel or raise a whisk, but the person wouldn't see. With a deaf person, they wouldn't hear the point of the words. With a mute person, if they had the person speak, they wouldn't be able to speak. But how would they guide such people? If they couldn't guide these people, then the Buddha Dharma has no effect. And then later, a monk took this, uh, this teaching from Gensha, and the monk asked Uman for instruction. Uman said, bow, 
the monk bowed and rose. Uman poked at the monk with his staff and the monk drew back. Uman said, you're not blind. Then Uman called him closer. When the monk approached, Uman said, you're not deaf. Next, Uman said, do you understand? The monk said, I don't understand. Uman said, you're not mute. At this, the monk had insight. So that question, how do we affect change in the world? Particularly when it seems the other side is unable or unwilling to see us, to hear us. Where words can't reach. And if the answer was easy, there wouldn't be a koan about it. I think the first step is to look inward, here on the cushion, here in our lives. Where are we blind? Where are we deaf or mute? Our zazen has an amazing capacity to uncover. And as we look inward, seeing where we might be stuck, we build a greater capacity to see and understand where others might be stuck. Where we are deaf, we might better hear others. Where we are blind, we can better see others. And where we are mute, we can better understand where others are too. In uncovering our own nature, we can better see the true nature of others. And with that, naturally, we can be more skillful in how we live our lives in relationship to the other. Using upaya or skillful means. And that doesn't mean that we aren't allowed to yell and shout when necessary. Sometimes grand performative gestures are necessary. You know, marching down the street with a sign. That might be the only way some people are heard. Sometimes it's getting involved with a social action group or giving money to a cause in need. But most often it's subtle, like simply listening to someone. Then, if needed, challenging them in a way that they might hear you or see you. And I say that, of course, like it's easy and straightforward, but of course it's not, at least for me. I constantly get caught up in my own righteous anger. I turn away from others because of their beliefs. I turn away because I don't want the discomfort of facing the other. But Zen practice encourages us not to turn away from the difficult questions, the difficult situations. But it encourages us to really investigate, to really penetrate these questions. And I think the goal is not finding 
some absolute black and white answer. I think the goal, I think the searching itself is the goal. These burning questions that keep us practicing, that's the uncomfortable intersection where we really uncover the most illuminating parts of ourselves. So that initial question, how can I listen to the other? How can I see the other? It's one that I'll practice with for the rest of my life. But also, that's not necessarily a bad thing. 